This is a revelation of divine love shown to a simple creature unlettered. In the year of our Lord, 1373, on the 13th day of May, This creature desired before three gifts be the grace of God. The first was mind of the passion. The second was bodily sickness. Pater Noster, qui es in Carlos, sanctificatur nomen tuum, adveniat regnum tuum. The third was to have God's gift. artist creates a piece of art, who is it for? What tools can they use? And how might they go about translating or communicating experiences they've had to audiences of people who may be very different from them? Keep these questions in mind, because today's episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages explores a creative partnership across the centuries between 21st century American filmmaker and writer Caroline Gollum and 14th century English anchorite and writer Julian of Norwich. I'm your host today, Logan Quigley. Thanks for joining us. Caroline is based in Brooklyn, New York, and she received her BFA in film and video production from the School of Visual Arts in 2010. Her debut feature film, A Feast of Man, which she directed and co-wrote, premiered at the Sidewalk Film Festival in 2017, and it speaks to her considerable creative talents offering a darkly funny perspective into how the allure of wealth intersects with friendship, loyalty, and persistence. Caroline's writing has been featured in Film Comment, Film Quarterly, Reverse Shot, Little White Lies, Screen Slate, and Filmmaker Magazine. And she's joining us here today from the set of her upcoming film adaptation of Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love. For her part, Julian lived primarily in the 14th century, in the English city of Norwich. And honestly, We know very little about her. We know she was born in 1342 or 1343, and that she died sometime after 1416. We know she was an anchorite at St. Julian's Church in Norwich, from which we draw her name. Being an anchorite meant she lived in enclosure, in a small cell off to the side of the church, with no doors for entry or exit, and only a small window through which people could pass food and ask for advice. Typically, being an anchorite was a lifelong commitment. At the age of 30, Julian received a series of visions or showings of the Passion of Christ. You just heard a bit of one of these showings at the start of the episode. She recorded these showings and her thoughts about what they meant and her experiences with them in a text she called A Revelation of Love. Today, many of us call this text Revelations of Divine Love. Thanks so much for joining me, Caroline. It's really great to have you here. It is an honor to be here, and I am so grateful to you for giving me an opportunity to wax rhapsodic about my two favorite subjects, the 14th century and low-budget filmmaking. You get the you get bit by the medieval bug, and then you're just stuck with it, you know? Speaking of, like, what what was the bug for you? I will I will give you the truncated answer of, of my love affair with the Middle Ages, beginning with my um, youthful obsession with all things gruesome and grisly which I think is how a lot of kids come to it. There's the romance of 
um, you know, chivalric legend and the knights and the sword fighting and the violence and the disease and all the things that are the headlines of the popular assumptions of the era. Um, and those lurid details are very appealing to children because children are gross. And I count myself as a child among them. And then you do the deeper dive, right? And you realize that the Renaissance is an op and actually the Middle Ages rules. <laughs> I mean, the Renaissance isn't an op, but you know what I mean. Like once you start to really sift through it and you notice like how intricate and beautiful and elaborate all that art is and, and how much, mm-hmm. you know, compelling literature that is still studied and cherished today came out of it, you know, and that's just in the decadent West, like just in the Latin West, you know, and then you get even further afield from that and you realize like, oh, actually, you know, there's so much more here than just the Black Plague and the Crusades. Barbara Tuckman's description of that of that the 14th century specifically as the distant mirror um, is is probably the most apt description because you know I, I think about this often uh, with the state of art today and the state of you know our rapidly collapsing economic system our unstable institutions and I think about how in spite of all of these things um, you know you could very easily tar our own era as an intellectual dark age as an artistic dark age as a political dark age. But in fact, that's not true. And that's, to me, one of the most resonant and exciting things about the medieval era is that people were so quick to write off that particular time as being backward and, and kind of fallow. And, and in fact, it's not. If it was, we wouldn't be talking about it now. This concept of the distant mirror is such a good one. What I love about it is that it's almost doubled in the Middle Ages as well because they were so interested in the past and in the way that the past was being reflected again in the present and the way that they were themselves reflecting into the future. So I think that what's so interesting about thinking about how the Middle Ages reflects our own time and we can see ourselves in it is that's really what they were doing as well. Yeah, this idea that time is a very tidy narrative is something that I think is very unique to especially like American education systems, right? Because we love to set up this um, this very constrained and walled path toward, you know, American hegemony and American supremacy that begins arguably with the Middle Ages being an intellectually backward era. Then we have the first stirrings of humanism and free thought that seem to materialize out of nowhere in the Renaissance, followed, of course, by the Enlightenment, which is our initial pushback against the church, the import of the Protestant Reformation being a huge part of it as well. And all of these things concluding, of course, as was ordained by God, with the arrival of the United States on the global scene. And you and I both know that this is total horseshit, but it's what we were taught as kids, unfortunately, which is what I think does a lot to to still inform alongside popular culture, like our understanding of the Middle Ages as being like the backwater or like the, the primordial soup that we crawl out of. But to your point, medieval people are fascinated by the past. And I love making that connection between the way that scholars and artists and theologians in the Latin West Middle Ages are thinking about the past the same way that, say, robber barons and romantic poets and artists and designers in the 19th century are thinking about the Middle Ages, and then our own way of thinking about those artists and and the artists that predate them before, you know, like everybody likes to look backward and see themselves in history. The the best example I can think of that's just icon like iconographically off the top of my head is all those depictions of the crucifixion or scenes from the life of Christ where everyone's wearing contemporary 14th century clothing. <laughs> They're not wearing anything resembling what people living in Palestine 
at the turn of the first millennium would have been wearing. They're wearing the kind of stuff that you'd see at court. And I think a lot of that has to do, and you can, and again, the other caveat I have to issue is that I am not an academic and I'm not a scholar of the Middle Ages. I'm just like a weirdo who's obsessed with it. So take <laughs> everything I'm saying with a big grain of salt. Um, but, you know, I think the, the images that we see of, you know, the Virgin in 14th century garb or the, you know, John the Baptist or the other apostles or other people that would have been present at the crucifixion, they're all depicted in a contemporary way, I think, because medieval people wanted to connect with the figures in the New Testament as um, as avatars for their own joys, their own sufferings. You know, we did a scene earlier this week, and by that I mean like two days ago, because Thursday is our Sunday, where Julian's mother, who is mentioned, I think, somewhat briefly in the short text, I don't know if she's if she's mentioned too often in the long text, Julian's mother comes to visit her at the anchor hold at Christmas and they have a back and forth about how, you know, Julian is very adamant about staying there. And because this is fan fiction, I get to write her however I want. And I write her as someone who's very adamant about staying enclosed in her place. Do we know whether or not Julian's mother was actually alive when she wrote this stuff, when she was enclosed? No, we don't know any of that. This is a movie, you know, so I get to make it up. But anyway, Julian's mother, you know, likens her suffering to the suffering of the Virgin when she um, when she sees Jesus crucified. Um, and I think that for people who, for example, lost children, they understood that there was someone divine that understood what they were going through, too. You know, or people who have suffered personal setbacks, they read the stories in the gospel or they read the the acts and they and they think, OK, this is happening to them. It's happening to me as well. And and in, in much that same way, I think what I like about this project so much and what I hope audiences get from the film in general is that they'll look at these, you know, somewhat three-dimensional humanistic depictions of people from a time that seems so alien to us. And they'll think, okay, people went through heavy shit back then. We're going through heavy shit now. Like, it's not a tidy linear narrative. It's actually quite cyclical. Something that really hits for me is your point about how throughout the Middle Ages, and of course, you know, this is relevant for us today, People just want to see themselves in narrative, and history is a form of narrative. And so all of these retellings of history are essentially ways, they're self-inserts. They're ways for us to see ourselves in stories that we think of as making ourselves, our present selves up. I brought back to the kind of hullabaloo online over the Rings of Power when it came out and all of the hairstyles and people just were beside themselves with the way that this this show had kind of modernized what they saw as something that should have been more authentically medieval, which is, of course, you know, on its head, ridiculous. And like, and like, what even is authentically medieval? You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like, the only thing I can think of as being authentically medieval is primary sources from the era, right? The art, the texts, the, you know, the little bits and bobs that we have that have remained because of what people chose to document and what they couldn't. And so... Your, your point about people being up in arms about this is or is not authentically medieval, I think, says so much about what we expect from the Middle Ages mm -hmm. as a genre of art making, as a time that is represented in, in, the, in visual arts. Because we expect certain things depending on the era, right? Like mm -hmm. you think of the, the British romance painters at the end of the 19th century and the early 20th. For them, like it was very much about this purity of white womanhood and chivalry and this courtly romance and everyone was really hot and noble and yada yada and it's kind of corny and then you think about when it when it dips into the realm of fantasy and a lot of that is tolkien's work who i will also say if this pisses people off i apologize not a big fan you know never really never really vibe with it 
didn't like reading the book in middle school <laughs> because of my last name, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. Like I totally am not into it, but I get where he's coming from. Like it's a game recognized game. The man was a deep Catholic and a, and a heady guy and loved the middle ages because there was something about that time that resonated with him and what he was about. I don't like what he was about, but he found it resonant. And sadly we have that in common. But what you're saying about people being up in arms about these adjustments, these modernizations, I think what what people fail to understand is that, like, one, the Lord of the Rings isn't really set in the Middle Ages, but people love swords and shit, so, like, whatever, and they have armor. So they're looking at something that's medievalistic, but it's not actually medieval. And and people get uptight about that sort of thing because they think, well, you know, there's castles and whatnot. Like, evidently, it's part of the Middle Ages because we have this idea of, like, what the Middle Ages entails. It's castles, it's horses, it's jousting, it's turkey legs, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's wizards and, and such. Don't get me wrong, I love all that crap. I just don't love it in The Lord of the Rings. One of our earlier episodes, we had Brian Keene and Larissa Grolamond, who who spoke a little bit about kind of the, the co-evolution of modern medieval studies with the rise of the fantasy genre, largely because of people like Tolkien, who were, of course, you know, an active medievalist academic mm-hmm. and also a fantasy writer. And so I think your point is such a good one that it's the kind of medievalisms that crop up in these fantasies are inextricably bound up with the way we imagine the medieval past, not just because those are very popular now, and that's how a lot of people encounter and think of the medieval, but because from the very beginnings of even medieval academia, fantasy was such an important part of why people who were interested in the medieval were interested in the medieval. You know, you use the word fan fiction to describe your work, and I'd love if you would talk a little bit more about that and how viewing your work as fan fiction has played into the choices you've been making in adapting Revelations of Divine Love. Well, I think the limited number of primary sources that we have that relate to Julian is helpful in a very kind of fucked up way. We don't have really a lot of evidence about her other than the work that she made herself. And I was very adamant in when I was casting the film and talking to my collaborators about this and pointing out that like the only real characters in this movie are Isabel Ufford, who is cited as, you know, she has the will that, that bequeaths Julian, I think it's 20 shillings, and Sarah who lives with her. So Sarah who's cited in that will, Julian herself and Marjorie Kemp because of Marjorie's reference to visiting Julian the Anchoress at Norwich. And so Marjorie Kemp comes in at the very end for a bit of comic relief because we love Marjorie. And Julian cites a curate who is there during her illness. And so we have her confessor, who's a separate character that I've invented, and then the curate that she cites in her account, who then comes back as the white friar who's cited in Marjorie's account. So we get a callback there where the younger curate who is, you know, attending her with her confessor comes back around as a as a clergyman who cited in Marjorie's text. So those five people are there and everybody else is is sort of like a a fictional character. I mean, the film is historical fiction. Mm -hmm. And I don't want people to think that I'm trying to make the definitive biographical film about Julian of Norwich. I don't think that biographical, that definitive biographical film is really possible without extrapolation. And I'm trying as best as I can to let people know that this is a work of fiction, but it's based on the writings of a real person. And the narrative things that make their way into the story, the plague, the peasants' revolts, scenes at Christmas, scenes at Easter, are important facets of this era that I felt ought to be addressed, especially because, at least in Julian's writing, there are some scholars who are very quick to point out the the plague imagery when she describes Christ's rotting flesh 
and the uh, Lord and servant parable I think of as being like a very kind of tender moment about labor. I don't know, you know, how involved she was or even aware she was of the of the peasants' revolt at the time that it happened. Because again, we don't even know if she was enclosed at that time, right? Mm-hmm. We still have no clue. You know, in this film, she talks to Walter, who may or may not be the famed Walter of the peasants' revolt. And that's where it gets a little fan fiction-y. You know, you get the crossovers from the 14th century expanded universe in there. But where I where I see myself within that larger tradition of like medievalistic art or medievalisms is that I'm basing a work of fiction on things with, with a little bit of veracity, but use, just using it really as a foundation upon which to build a larger narrative. And I find Julian's narrative to be especially useful to me as an artist, and I found it to be useful to me... Uh, as a as even a human being like spiritually and psychologically at the time in which i was introduced to her work and of course unfortunately it became very timely for all the reasons that we know of already and and that was just an accident because i started writing this movie in like 2017 mm-hmm. so the things that that are contemporaneous about it or relatable are things that i would have put into any story to make it contemporaneous and relatable no matter what the era are because if you're a filmmaker, you, you've got to make things that people understand and connect with. But for myself, like on that spectrum of like medievalistic artists or artists who are dabbling in the medieval or drawing from it, you know, I don't come from the same kind of academic position as, as Tolkien would or even like George Martin. But I, I have an attachment to the era because of, because of how it resonates with me, because of how the art resonates with me and the literature resonates with me. And it's it's something that I have such a strong affection for that like I try to the best of my ability to imbue that affection into the different beats of the story. Mm-hmm. I, I want more than anything to counter as best I can, like our weird assumptions about gender in the middle ages and sex in the middle ages, even though there's no sex in this movie or literacy or labor, you know, there's only so much you can do with 80 minutes and $80,000. I will say that. Where possible, I tried to to put some contemporary naturalism into the script because I think we do people from the past a disservice by psychoanalyzing them. And then also because we're using the 14th century, in this case, as as a tool, uh, as a distant mirror, if you will, to look at our own time. You started speaking a little bit about the choices we have to make in representing the Middle Ages, and especially in your case, especially in the medium you're working with, the choices you have to make given the the budget limitations and the other restrictions that you're facing. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about some of the parallels you might see between the art that you're creating and the way medieval art itself was created, which was also, of course, undertaken with quite a bit of limitation, quite a few restrictions, but also in a context where people had a pretty different understanding of authorship and individual ownership of artistic pieces. So the thing I always go back to is is the Erwin Panofsky quote, which he said during an address at Princeton University when he was trying to make a case for a permanent department of film at the Museum of Modern Art. And he said in 1934, it might be said that a film called into being by a cooperative effort in which all contributions have the same degree of permanence is the nearest modern equivalent of a medieval cathedral. The role of the producer corresponding more or less to that of a bishop or archbishop 
that of the director to that of the architect in chief, that of the scenario writers to that of the scholastic advisors establishing the iconographical program, and that of the actors, cameramen, cutters, soundmen, makeup men, and the diverse technicians to that of those whose work provided the physical entity of the finished project. And I think this is absolutely true. Maybe not so literally on our set because we're all doing like a million fucking jobs at once. So the, the division of labor is not so cut and dry on a production of this scale as it would be on a studio film, and certainly not in 1934. But the way that he cites a medieval cathedral as being a combination of disparate artistic disciplines that are brought together, create a cohesive whole, a cohesive structure that contains within it multiple different means of making art and ways of telling a story, I think is absolutely valid. And what's especially interesting too, is he's talking about, again, in 1934, um, films that are made within the studio system in Hollywood, which at the time was a, was a monopoly on the entire medium of film, at least in the United States. There were experimental filmmakers working in 1934. There were amateur filmmakers working in 1934. There were exploitation filmmakers and independent filmmakers and, and artsy, little film societies. But at the end of the day, if you went to a movie theater in 1934, you were seeing a film produced by a Hollywood studio, most likely. And I keep going back to, especially on this film, you know, the role of the church as a vehicle for art making mm -hmm. and how I love saying that, you know, and, and this is also an opinion of mine that's, that's shifted somewhat as I've come to study the era, you know, people love to say, oh, the Catholic Church is so, so awful. It's a, it's a colonial enterprise. It's been oppressive toward uh, women and marginalized people for centuries. And never mind all the other miserable things that the Catholic Church has done. But God damn it, they made some great art. And I think the kind of more contemporary read that I've, I've taken is in spite of all those things that the Catholic Church represents, in spite of all the um, constraints that it imposed upon artists, and in spite of the limitations that it presented and in spite of its stranglehold on image making and iconography, some incredible art was made within that system. And the studio system in Hollywood, you know, isn't nearly as offensive as the Catholic Church, obviously, but it is not dissimilar in terms of its far reach, its, its monopolistic hold on image making for such a long time, its agenda in terms of the kind of life that it wants to represent, its limitations that it set up for itself, especially in 1934 when the production code takes effect, the limitations of what it what it allows its artists and artisans to create and to represent, what stories it can tell, in spite of all those things, in spite of the Hollywood system being misogynistic and racist and um, oppressive and frustrating and limiting. And I say this as someone who reveres classic Hollywood cinema, by the way. In spite of those things, some truly great art was made, not because it was a very corporatized and formalized Fordian system, but in spite of it. And so I think on that level, too, Panofsky's quote completely holds. Mm -hmm. Within the context of our film, which is it's only the second film I've made, and I can't really speak to how it is everywhere else, our, our situation is a lot more flexible. But there still is a non-hierarchical but very rough delineation of duty where people will move in and out of quote-unquote departments, and the departments are all like one-person departments, you know what I mean? But we, we still have like specific elements of storytelling that have to fall into place in order to successfully create this whole from these disparate parts. And that is the performance. It's the lighting. It's the camera angles and how many of them there are per scene. It's the scenic painting and the set construction, which props we're using. It's the wardrobe design. And I, I guess the architect of it, of a cathedral, you know, corresponding to that of the director is not inaccurate because it was my dumb idea. <laughs> 
and I'm the one who is responsible for us making this thing at all. And, and that's pretty much the only credit I can really claim on my own. But in as much as I, I have a job on this, on this set, it's to come up with this dumb idea and then step back and watch the technicians and the artisans and the tradespersons that would have built this cathedral go in and do that work. So filmmaking, yes, cathedral building, and also like making art in spite of limitations is very much a piece of what we're doing. Mm. We have to be very resourceful and repurpose things. And a lot of medieval architecture is about repurposing too on a purely material level. So there is that. And then there's also iconographical or archetypal facets of medieval art that we are trying to bake into this process. The way people are posed, the scale of buildings for our exterior scenes that seem smaller and flatter and further away. The film is being made in, I'm, I'm here in the studio right now and it's a, I don't even know how many hundred square feet. It's a couple hundred, a couple thousand square feet in there. We have a, a set that contains mostly Julian's cell, which is 10 by 10 and the adjoining bed chamber for Sarah, which is another like slightly smaller cell that has a door. Every time that Tessa, my lead actress, gets in there and we have to shoot her in the anchor hold, we have to take a removable wall and put her back into it. She has no point of egress unless we move the wall. Wow. Like it really is like a totally enclosed environment. And, and we're, we have to pass her things through the window. The other day, our costume designer had to do a, a slight adjustment to her headdress and had to reach through the window in order to do it. Like it is very... Method acting. It's somewhat method. She's really stuck in there, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, she's not stuck in there. She doesn't live there. We move the wall and she gets out, but she it still requires the effort of multiple people to get her out of there. Whereas Isabel, who's playing Sarah, can leave through a door. Mm-hmm. And so there is that facet of it at work too, you know. Something you had mentioned was the the kind of long-term resonances you see in the ways that, of course, the things that Julian was dealing with in her life, you know, you mentioned the Black Death, the Peasants' Revolt. I'm also thinking of, um, you know, the Lollard suppression, the kind of religious violence of the time, and how those might show up today. How did enclosure really factor into this for you? You know, you mentioned you thought of the movie beforehand, you kind of designed the project before the pandemic, but of course, living through it, I imagine, put you in the shoes of someone really experiencing enclosure. My immediate instinct is to just completely minimize my own traumatic experience during the pandemic because I'm trying to be tough and suck it up and say, look, it wasn't that bad. And I will also say that for me, it wasn't. And I've been very fortunate, but also it was incredibly traumatizing. I was just talking to Tessa about this last night because yesterday was Valentine's Day and, you know, she's away from her awesome, cool husband, Jeff. Hi, Jeff. And because uh, she, she's in L.A. and we flew her out here for a month to be in the picture. So we had ourselves a little Galentine's Day and we got to talking and, you know, we talked a bit about the film and then we talked about our lives. She moved back to L.A. during the pandemic and hadn't really clocked a lot of time in New York until she came back here. And we were talking about this and, and she mentioned something very astute, which is that you don't see a lot of writing about the Spanish flu. Mm. And, and that in hindsight, it makes perfect sense. Why? Because it's horrifying. Mm-hmm. It was a horrifying thing for people to live through, just as uh, we continuously live in a state of horrification at the ongoing pandemic. But just as quickly as people were rallying to help one another and get people vaxxed and boosted and deliver groceries and make masks, they were quick to forget it, I think, because they were traumatized by it. And for me, at least, like, you know, I mean, I have a very distinct memory of being at my favorite bar, Charlene's on Flappish Avenue. With my best friend, Christina, we were sitting at the bar, uh, you know, days before the lockdown happened. And I was crying into my martini going, I can't believe I wrote a movie about the plague and there's a plague happening. I'm never going to make this. <laughs> and 
you know, I feel in many ways very fortunate that I was aware of Julian's work ahead of this because it did equip me in, in a very useful way to contextualize this, that horrible things happen and the only way out is through. And if you have to cloister yourself and live through it that way, if you have to find other ways to connect with people that aren't in the material or corporeal realms, then you find a way to do it. What I like especially about Julian's work and why it was so helpful to me at this time is that she is both zooming in and zooming out, right? Like you think specifically of the iconic image of the hazelnut and what she says about it. The idea that the entirety of the universe is something that's so small and so fragile that it can fit in the palm of your hand, but then also thinking about oneself within that larger context of the universe, it does have a very, I would say, freeing effect. And and that kind of isolation and alienation is something that was already kind of brewing prior to the pandemic. And I think the pandemic exacerbated that even further. You know, the idea of being locked away from people, I didn't choose to be anchored in place the way that Julian did. And I'm certainly not dealing with the same level of isolation that she was. But at the same time, like, I think what makes Julian's story effective is if she cannot leave, if she's really stuck there of her own volition. I think that's where the conflict lies is whether to stay put and and continue to honor this thing that you've been given or whether it behooves you to leave and try to contribute that way. I'm really curious about some of the choices that you and your, your creative partners made in adapting Julian's writings for the screen. What's it been like choosing parts of Julian's writings to represent? What are you honing in on? And with those parts that are perhaps difficult to represent or capture on screen, what are some of the choices you've had to make? So the big thing for me is I started with the visions mm. because those jumped out as the most cinematic facet mm-hmm. of her writing. And it's a supreme irony that those are the things we're probably going to have to film last and that we're probably going to have to film later and we're going to have to raise money for them again. So our our rationale, at least from a purely pragmatic material standpoint, is get, get 60% of the film or 70% of the film in the can. And that's the stuff where she's just in one spot. Mm. You know what I mean? But when I initially began to write about this, the visions were the things that jumped out at me, and that was what I wanted to depict first. And in a way, it's kind of fortunate that we are doing those later because it gives me even more time to ruminate on them and what I want them to say. The visions that I that I found most compelling in the short text were obviously the vision of the fiend, the master and servant parable, describing Christ's face as, as rotting away, and the, the very real, what felt to me like a like a dissolve, like a cinematic dissolve between the inanimate object that is a crucifix and the living face of Christ in his passion. Mm. And when you read her, her description of this, and I don't have it in front, like I, I have uh, the rochester.edu old English version of her manuscript up in a tab. I'm not going to look at it right That's now. That's a great edition. I love the Rochester edition. I'm always sending it to people. Shout out to Rochester. Thank you for keeping that. Thank up you there. to all the good people at Rochester. Thank you, Rochester, especially because I'm copy pasting parts of it into InDesign to make printout manuscript pages. I was literally doing that this afternoon. So mm-hmm. that being said, her description of how she sees the the crucifix itself, the Christ figure, figurine, I guess, that her confessor, the curate, holds in front of her to the way in which it becomes the living face of Christ suffering in his passion is is incredibly cinematic to me. It could only be a dissolve. Like that's how I imagined it in my mind. And that was a huge part of what what jumped out at me and what made me think this is going to make an incredible film. And so I, I tried to pick parts also that served my own agenda as an artist. And I would be lying to you if I said I didn't have one. You know, I, I love the idea of the master and servant parable, like I mentioned earlier, is something that we can tie back to the peasants' revolt. 
I love the plague imagery as something that we can tie back to her own experience within the film of the plague. I love the way that she describes Christ as our very mother, because this also, you know, calls back to her own relationship to her mother. And also choosing iconographical images that we want to draw from in, in, our, in our set design and our set construction, you know, better allows us an opportunity to, to pick and choose like what we want to roll with. And of course, the hazelnut is the real star of the film, as my producer says. We, we love this fucking thing so much. I got one from the actual shrine at St. Julian's in Norwich, and I brought it back with me from England for the Oxford Conference, the New Visions of Julian Conference. A shout out to the organizers of the New Visions of Julian Conference at Oxford. Thank you for having me. Uh, but of course, I made my pilgrimage to Julian's church and nabbed a little hazelnut and took it with me and and lined a brass box that I have with burgundy velvet, and we shot the living hell out of this thing the other day. And it's it's such an incredible image, the way she described I mean, it's insane, and it's an incredible thing to think about when the world is literally on fire 24-7, 365. And I have my own kind of complicated relationship to the idea of, of a God, you know, an Abrahamic God to begin with, but even like a, a creator that makes conscious decisions about our civilization. But the idea of the universe itself as something everlasting is an incredible notion to me. And the idea of, of love as some sort of inexhaustible resource that is everlasting is very beautiful to me too. And I'm trying to the best of my ability, and a lot of this is going to be hinging on my own ability as a filmmaker. I'm trying to the best of my ability to, to convey that everlasting nature of love in this film and, and, and in the actions that people take and in the things that they do. That's really incredible, too, just because it puts me in mind of Julian again and how right now your task is paralleled to the one that she had set before herself, too. The difficulty of conveying that, um, of trying to capture that in language, because it really is not only, I think, is, of course, the idea of eternity or of infinity actually inconceivable, but completely inexpressible as well. So the fact that you're grappling with it now in film is truly incredible because it's less like you're trying to tell a definitive biography of Julian and it's more honestly like you're working as her creative partner just across the centuries. I feel I feel that way. I don't want to presume at all that like I have some depth of knowledge about her that rivals the scholarship that has been so important to me in my research. But part of why I wanted to make this film is because I found her to be as a as an author and as a theologian so relatable. You know, so much of what she was saying about love, you know, it in this instance, takes on the language of, of Christian iconography because that is the world in which she is operating. She is a Christian woman. The church is the most prominent and pervasive institution in her life. It's like the internet in that it is a, an integral facet of everything that we do now. And even though it exists in a physical space, it's also ethereal and, and around us and influencing us all the time, right? So because Julian lived at that time, this is the language that she has to describe her experience, her showings and, and her understanding. I live in a very different time. I'm a very different person than she is for a lot of reasons, cultural and temporal and economic and whatever. I can also leave my house whenever I want to, which rocks. But that being said, I have to use the, the iconographical language that's available to me to say what I want to say. And that iconographical language is the grammar of film. And there are certain... I would say unassailable facets of Western filmmaking tropes that are effective for whatever reason, probably because we're accustomed to seeing them, but also because they have their roots in more, more deeply or closely held narrative tendencies that, that are born of the theater and of other kinds of image making and, and storytelling. 
And I think a lot about, too, you know, getting back to this Catholic Church Hollywood correlation. And I think a lot about the function of the church as a site of visual pleasure, too, for people. And as a, a site of light and shadow play of, and even animation. You know, we were chatting about this at lunch, um, you know, because we get a lunch break. It's, it's great. It's our favorite time of day. Um, and like I said, we're a small crew and, and we had a really fun day when we had a, a scene with some pilgrims that came mm. by, like for the film, there's a pilgrim scene and, and then Julian hands them a bit of the manuscript and somebody reads a, a little part about how the youth that, that gives his life unto God will have the most reward, which I, I don't know if I agree with, but Julian obviously thought so. Um, and it's a great thing to say to some body German pilgrims coming around the bend who are on a lad's weekend, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I, and that's like the cue that I gave the actors too. I was like, look, it's pilgrimage. It's room spring out. You're on a, it's a lad's weekend. Like you're here to fuck around. Cause that's what a lot of people did on pilgrimage. That was an opportunity for them to like be away from their jobs and their parishes and their families and to kind of act up, you know, <laughs> the world. But we talked about how so many of these, these churches and cathedrals had, you know, elaborate wall mm-hmm. paintings. The Norwich Cathedral especially had a lot of very beautiful ones, but also elsewhere, elaborate wall paintings, stained glass windows. I mean, more jewels and gold than you would ever see in your normal mm-hmm. life, more images than you would see normally, especially if you didn't have access to books regularly or paintings. Mm-hmm. If you were a regular person, going to the church was like going to a movie. You would see the the way that the smoke from the candles and the incense would take these different shapes depending on the structure of the building and the time of day. You would see these stained glass windows illuminated by natural light. You would see the gold leaf or gilt edging or even actual gold um, illuminated by candlelight and natural light and haze and smoke within the space. It was really like a, a very production designed experience in the Catholic Church. Um, it's a huge part of the allure of Catholic iconography for us too is that it was so ornate and so elaborate and especially in the medieval era. So there isn't really for me like a big leap between what medieval people wanted when they went to church and and why it was a source of visual pleasure for them and why it was a source of even beyond that pleasure a visual resonance for them and the function of going to the movies today you know it's where we go to see it big to experience something that is larger than ourselves in communion with other people i also think that the the network of of how people got texts and how text moved from one clerical site to the next is very internet to me. I think about networks of monasteries and convents that are bringing in texts from the Arab world that have been translated into Greek that are then translated into Latin or moving, for instance, Julian's text probably from Benedictine nuns that fled the, the Reformation in England over to France and how we have it because of that. and the way that different religious sites have had to change with shifting political powers and and these little lending libraries. Yeah, it's a network. It's like the internet. And I think there are aspects too of, I mean, if you want to do the deep dive on it, like the changes between early Christianity and Western Europe, and then the way in which that Christian theology becomes more codified and more formalized and how information is seeded out and who has access to what information parallels, at least for me as an old millennial, it parallels for me the way that the internet used to be a lot more freewheeling and, and um, expansive and like a little scrappier and there was kind of more movement and you could fall down rabbit holes more readily and now it's become very commercial and you are kind of shuttered into a handful of acceptable channels. At the same time, like in, in much the same way that the church was probably overdue for some kind of overhaul, whether 
Protestant or not, you know, it got to be a, a too big to fail and then it kind of began to fissure. Um, I'm sure the internet will befall a similar fate. And then who can say what, what that form will be on the other side? I just want to borrow a metaphor from one of my favorite writers, Terry Pratchett, who I just was reading this last night, which is why it's sticking in my head. But he has uh, his Discworld series has this concept that uh, stories are kind of these great ribbons of space time that force themselves to be retold through lives. And so there's, uh, you know, stories are told over and over and over again. I wonder about how with your previous movie, A Feast of Man, I wonder how you really see those ribbons of space-time, those stories, do you see resonances between that film and the one you're creating now or the kinds of just art you've been interested in making across your life? I think if there's any kind of tidy through line to be made between those two films and even maybe like my watercolor movie I made about Julian during the pandemic, which is, I can send you the link for that. It's on Vimeo. And it played at Prismatic Ground, by the way, a phenomenal film festival uh, that was founded and curated by my great friend, Inay Prakash, who plays the young curate. And then he comes back later in old guy makeup. We're going to shoot that in a few weeks. So if there's a through line between those two works, which are very different in tone and style, it's in, it's in a very scrappy and handcrafted fashion. You know, at the end of the day, like I, I would say if Julian and I have one thing in common, it's that we're making our work outside of an institution. Mm. That's the biggest similarity between the two of us she's writing in english because it's probably the language that she is most comfortable with being someone from east anglia and she's writing her work for an audience that is reading in english so what does that mean it means she's not purporting to create something that is part of a canon she is consciously choosing to work outside that canon and whether or not i chose to work outside the canon that's just the world i inhabit i long ago made peace with the fact that I'm not going to be making films for a Hollywood studio in the 1940s, which is my dream job. Mm -hmm. But I, I, even if I was alive back then, I wouldn't have had that job because there was only one woman who was allowed to do it back then. And it was Ida Lupino. I'm looking at a picture of her hanging above my head right now in the studio. You know, there are just so many limitations that, you know, if you're a film artist in the 21st century, you have to contend with resources and time and, ability to disseminate that work across a rather atomized audience. I don't know if Julian was writing her book for broad public consumption. You know, she opens her text with the customary medieval self-abasement that is true of so many writers from that era. But you have to wonder, you know, for someone writing in English at that time, whether she had anticipated that there would be a reader on the other side or whether it was just for her. And in the work that I make, you know, I never know if there's an audience on the other side, but I have to do it anyway, because it's my vocation. I don't call it a job because I'll never make a dime from it. I don't call it a hobby because I think that denigrates the work that other people do with me. It's not a hobby. It's my vocation. I, I've been selected by something bigger than myself to receive the parasite that is filmmaking that has taken over my brain <laughs> and it has become like my entire raison d'etre and I have to do it. And I'm sure Julian was compelled by something that she considered a vocational to make this exegesis because the experience that she had was so powerful. So is there a through line between all the different facets of my work? It's, it's that it's made, um, you know, in a very resourceful way because that's what I have available to me. And it's, it's personal for different reasons. Feast of Man is a very broad 
kind of saucy class satire that is kind of crude, um, both in the way that it was executed because we did it on a very low budget and also because of the, the kind of slapstick or jokey tone that it has. But I would say on a, on a larger, maybe philosophical level, you know, it feels kind of pretentious to talk about my body of work, knowing that I've got a movie, no one will see one on Tubi and one in progress. But if there's, if there's any kind of guiding philosophy behind it, it's that, not to quote Dick Cheney here, but you kind of go to war with the army you have, right? There's a, there's a compulsion to do something and you have to follow it. And, and I, I'm a big fan of stories about communality. You know, my producer and I are doing our due diligence to maintain a non-hierarchical environment on set. And even though I thought I was ready to throw myself off a bridge after week one, apparently everyone's having a really chill time, you know, knock wood that we can maintain it. I hope we can. I don't really believe in hard and fast distinctions between someone who's in charge and someone who's not. I don't consider myself to be in charge, really. Kate's in charge because she's running the show, but we're not bosses. I don't believe that that you need a hierarchy or a management class or even a very rigid power structure to make work. I, I think actually it can hinder it in a lot of ways. Um, and I, I think some structure is necessary because otherwise things are, are left nebulous and unclear. And you don't want that kind of ambiguity where you've got a lot of people giving their time and their devotion to a project and their labor. You want certain things to be hard and fast rules, like don't be a shithead to people and respect boundaries. That's, that's a hard and fast rule. But you can respect boundaries without being hierarchical. Feast of Man is a movie about people who have their own individual decision to make about a communal effort. They all individually have to reckon with whether or not they're going to eat a dead body so that they can all collectively inherit $1 million. This film is very much about an individual. It's, it's about a main character, and that's Julian. But her struggle in the film, in as much as there is a traditional story arc to be laid out, is her, her struggle between what she feels she has to do as an individual and, and what she feels she has to do for other people, if anything at all. And also her own relationship to the world outside, right? Like she's moved by this experience to cloister herself, to make her work in solitude. And yet I think she finds throughout the, the unfolding story that having other people helps her to make that work more effective. So even though she decides to stay cloistered in the environment, there's still other things. In as much as there are other people like moving it around her, like even though she stays in this anchor hold, she still finds a way to strike that balance between her own individual desire to make something and the import of other people in her life on that process. Thinking of you along the lines of Julian's creative partner or, or creating kind of alongside this other artist from the past, something that's always really struck me about Julian's work, about Marjorie Kemp's work, about all these works by these writers of the 14th century and, and the 15th century were that whether they seemed like they expected to be read by a wide audience or not, it really seems like they themselves are responding to the writers of people they viewed as their contemporaries, other people who had had visions, other people who had had these kinds of experiences, or that they're writing for someone who they might imagine as their contemporary, someone who might be going down that same path. Thinking about other contemporaries, other people who are grappling with questions like this, with this kind of representation, do you feel like there are any lessons you've learned out of this or, or anything that's been really interesting to you that we might want to bear in mind in our own creation? Yeah, I mean, I am drawing from a pool of people, or I would say like a you know, at least in a purely like labor way, our cast and our crew, our collaborators, 
are people that we know intimately. They are people who are in our circles, our creative circles, and they're people who, you know, like myself, have regular jobs, who are doing their work on nights and weekends, who have different backgrounds that may not be traditional cinematic backgrounds, but are still coming from a place of passion and interest. And so this film in general is very unconventional for a lot of reasons. The subject matter, the aesthetic, the tone, how it's being made, how it was financed with a combination of crowdfunding and grant money and a bank loan, how we're paying people and what we expect of them in terms of what they can do on the set. So that in and of itself is already like something that's very unconventional. But I think that a lot of the medieval sources that we're, we gravitate towards are, you know, like I said, not unlike Julian's work, things that come from outside the canon or things that are coming from a place that I would say is maybe more vernacular. And I don't mean vernacular to denigrate work made by people who are working outside of institutions. I mean vernacular in the true humanistic and interpersonal sense, like a, a common language, a common goal collaborating with people who are coming from mostly theater backgrounds. Kate has a very strong theater background and she's brought some incredible people to this project that are coming from theater and thus are able to lend a certain expertise when it comes to creating sets that are very stage-like or operating in a very small space or doing multiple jobs. You know, I have a, a very traditional filmmaking background in that I went to film school and made a movie and wrote about movies and stuff. But like, I'm not a fucking medievalist, you know? I'm definitely not coming from like an academic background with this project. Our set designer, my fantastic boyfriend, Grant, is a painter who works with small models and knows a lot about medieval painting because he just finds it interesting. Gabe, who's our, our DP, who I've known for, who's been involved with this project pretty much from the outset. He got involved like six years ago. He went to film school, but he has an engineering background. So he is very technical when it comes to using the lights and the other kind of grip equipment to like create a certain mood. And he's very particular about identifying like what kind of shape and tone the light will have to convey that mood, right? He paints with it the way that like John Alton called his book Painting with Light, like Gabe is a painter of light. And some of the stuff that we're shooting, I mean, it looks like Dutch Masters, which is anachronistic, but it still, I think, does a lot to evoke like what, you know, the Dutch Masters were painting... 150, 200 years after the events of this book, I don't think that the objects that people used in the day-to-day -day and the buildings they occupied in the day-to-day -day changed very drastically in that time. From a scholarly standpoint or a research standpoint, the research that I've done has drawn very heavily from medievalists that are doing work to expand our understanding of the Middle Ages. So here I get to shout out, obviously, doctors Michelle Sauer and Dorothy Kinn and Mary Rambaram Ulm who are all phenomenal scholars and who have written extensively about, about the Middle Ages as something that is not just this narrow 19th century white male realm. And to our credit, the crew isn't entirely uh, white guys, although we do have some lugging things around because that's what they do. The, the casting has been, to the best of my ability, an attempt to include as many different kinds of people as possible just because this is the, the world in which we operate. We're bringing in people from the cultures and the communities that we live in to make what is ultimately a contemporary story, even though it's set in the 14th century. And I will say that having that freedom to be expansive or flexible in our interpretation of the Middle Ages is a huge part of what I think is going to make this film so wonderful because we are all committed to it regardless of where we come from and what level of education we have and what our economic backgrounds are. We have one thing in common, which is that we just want to make this weird-ass 14th century movie.
I beheld, thinking of what matter might be that the servant should do. And then I understood that he should do the greatest labor and the hardest work that there is. He should be a gardener, delving and digging, which he should bring before the Lord and serve him to his liking. Thank you so much for, for rejoining me, Caroline, for this conversation. Uh, it's great to get a chance to reconnect. Congratulations on making so much progress with the film. I wonder, you know, just to kind of start off, if you'd catch me up on what's happened since our last conversation. So much has happened since our last conversation, Logan. I am so glad you asked. And thank you for also giving me an opportunity to, to pop in with an update. So when I talked to you, I think we recorded this episode like in mid-February, and we had just wrapped our first of uh, five weeks of, sh of shooting principal photography. And what that entailed, um, for those of you who are unfamiliar with the filmmaking process, principal photography is when you shoot like almost everything. Um, and we refer to it as principal photography because there's still some parts that we have to shoot, and I'm going to get into that in a second. But we did a five-week shoot all in that weird little warehouse in Ridgewood, and the first week was, I mean, everybody was like really getting their bearings and we got into a groove and something that I really, I really wanted to emphasize is that like the, the medieval cathedral metaphor, the Panofsky medieval cathedral metaphor, just like it, it only, it only became like richer and more true for me, like the more I thought about it. And especially like as the division of labor, like constantly kind of changed or solidified while we were doing this process. The other thing that I... I really liked and I didn't get a chance to point out is that we had to do a lot of redresses for the last like week and change. When we wrapped out all the scenes in Julian's anchor hold, we had to convert that room into her bedroom at home when she's sick and she has her first vision of Christ. Um, we had to convert it into Father Ambrose's quarters for a scene with him and a priest from court who comes to visit with Isabel Ufford. We had to convert it to uh, the White Friars quarters when he gets his visit from Marjorie Kemp and tells her to go meet Julian. Um, we shot a time jump with actresses standing in for, you know, older versions of Julian and Sarah uh, for the Marjorie Kemp thing, which was really interesting. But also in that process, and this is more of like an aesthetic thing than a philosophical one, um, we had to do all these different redresses and painting the floor like a million different colors and, and doing these like weird location jumps. And we did so many weird little things that we couldn't have accomplished, I don't think, if we didn't have like a studio library. So getting into also like our, our chat a few months ago about how the internet has just become like so constrained and so crappy. This process has only accelerated since we wrapped in March, but we noticed early on, especially working with my perfect boyfriend, Grant, the set designer, that, that we were having a really hard time finding visual resources online, but we had a studio library of, um, you know, books about medieval decorative art or paintings or books of hours or, um, you know, different illuminations and facets of medieval design that we were able to go to again and again. We had a great book about um, medieval English churches that were from the kind of proto-Gothic era. And Julian's church is, I think, a Norman era um, church that was built in kind of like a Romanesque style. It's very squat. It doesn't have the kind of like vertically integrated Gothic style that you would see at the cathedral, for example. Um, we also had to like build part of the cathedral 
for our second to last day. And we really wanted to, I mean, I had, I had grander ideas. Like all of this film is, you know, all filmmaking at this scale is, is you take the big idea and then you slowly winnow it down and winnow it down and, and think about a solution to the problem of how do you show this thing. And when we did the cathedral and I can send you some, some screen grabs too, that I think would probably illustrate this better, but like we can't build a cathedral, but we had columns that were made out of cement pouring tubes, these big cardboard tubes that we wrapped in structural foam and covered with um, joint compound and sanded down to look like marble. And then we staged them with kind of like a forced perspective and made them look really imposing and then just hung like curtains and red velvet everywhere. Like one of the, one of the things that I really love doing, especially after we wrapped the stuff in the anchor hold, um, was getting outside of that and building little, little locations like miniature sets within that same space. Like the, the kitchen that we used for Julian's house became the kitchen at the Priory. And we had to redress that. It became the tavern. When we shot the Peasants Revolt scene, we had like a platform with barrels. There's a brewery next door. We borrowed a massive barrel from them, you know, for one of the shoots. We had like a water pump and stuff. Um, but we did a lot of work with just like, just hanging fabric up, you know, and it, it kind of worked out. Like we're looking at a lot of these illuminations and little paintings of um, scenes of everyday life or scenes of lay person's interiors, like the, the, the lives of the laity taverns kitchens bedrooms things like that and i gotta tell you people in the middle ages really just loved hanging fabric up on stuff they loved like drapery and we had to do a lot of like half timbering with like strips of foam and stuff too like making these buildings look like fake half timbers tiki bar thatch as like a thatch roof i mean it was very inventive i've been applying for grants for finishing funds for the film because we still have to film the visions and those are going to be very splendid so obviously I need more money for it because they're also going to be on location. Like the idea being that her real life is very constrained and very stage bound and her visionary experience is more recognizable to a contemporary audience so that we buy into this idea that it's possible for people to have visions. I don't want people to think that she's hallucinating, that she's crazy. So shooting the visions with natural light in an exterior will give them a quote unquote more realistic look. And that's what I want. I want people to be able to go back there, like want to go back to that visionary state because it is more recognizable as she also wants to go back in her mind as she's writing the book. So where the film's at now is we have an assembly uh, as of June of this year. There's about 79 minutes of it cut together, which is the lion's share of the film. And my editor is right now experimenting with the structure of the story because obviously when I wrote the script, it had one structure, but as every filmmaker will tell you, there's the movie you make, like the movie you write, the movie you shoot, the movie you edit, and the movie that people see. So your film will start in one state, and over time it metamorphosizes into all these different things. But the structure of the story is very traditional. It's, she's sick, she has these visions, she seeks to understand them, she encloses herself, she is beset upon by, by these worldly events over which she has no control, and then finds the resolve to stay the course and, and, and continue to serve this thing that's been shown to her. Um, but one of the things that we're playing with structurally too is like, can we start at the end? Mm. Can we start in the 15th century with Marjorie's arrival? Is Marjorie the audience? And, you know, in talking to Julian in the 1400s, she begins to learn like how she got to this point. The goal with the vision, since we have a couple to shoot, is to sort of seed them throughout the story and make the narrative as much about her personal journey as it is about her artistic journey to write the book. You mentioned 
the nature of this kind of filmmaking is essentially a distillation process. You, you start with an idea and over the, over the course of filming and, and everything that goes into it, you come out with something a little different, something boiled down, something that's manageable to actually produce. And I think I'm wondering if you can do that for us in an idea sense. You know, you've been through all of this work. You've done so much of the filming. I wonder maybe if you might offer us a crystallized sense of what this movie is communicating. You know, I think what drew me to this project, the impetus of making this film, the seed of it uh, was kind of planted when I was looking at my, my first feature that I finished, Feast of Man, now on Tubi. I finished that film after like three years of post-production and it was a very arduous process and I was feeling very dispirited about my work as a filmmaker, about the direction my life was going, about the state of the world. And then because of the moment in time in which I became aware of Julian's work, that kind of inspired the impetus for this film. And the journey of this movie, just to get to this point where we've shot 79 minutes of it, you know, cut together and we're still not done, has been six years. And it's been very, very difficult for me to maintain that momentum. I would be lying to you if I said that it wasn't. However, I stuck the course. And the reason for that is because so did Julian. So much of Julian as like a character also came from the work that Tessa did in creating that performance and in fleshing out that role. And she and I had a lot of conversations about this, obviously on set. I think that the, the film is about what happens when you are called to make work and when you have to navigate being a person in the world, the, the earthly and the ethereal, right? The corporeal and the spiritual. You know, in my own life and work um, as, a, as an artist, as a writer, as a person who lives in a society, also as like a tarot reader, which was one of the crowdfund prizes, it all boils down to like, for me, the struggle between body and soul, right? What you want to do with yourself, you know, as a spiritual person or as a, a person with great depth of feeling and what you actually have to do and navigate with a body. And I think about this all the time too, about how our immortal soul and our consciousness, uh, the best container we have for it is a flesh bag that breaks down all the time. So this is a very long-winded and not at all crystallized answer, but if I can distill the film into anything, it's about what you owe yourself when you are called to make something and what you owe other people. You know, Julian has these visions and she could have kept them to herself. She could have gone on pilgrimage. She could have become a nun. Um, she could have done any number of things. We don't really know what moved her to become an anchoress beyond that. We, we can assume that the visions were what moved her to become an anchoress, but we don't know for sure. But she had this experience and she called its bluff and she enclosed herself in this very constrained mode of living and attempted to navigate being a public person and a private person, being an artist and being a friend or a daughter or a Christian operating in a Christian society. Uh, she bought the ticket and she took the ride. And for myself, as someone who's already spent almost a sixth of my life trying to make this film and then staring down what is now probably another year of production, like the thing that keeps me going is one, Julian spent the rest of her life on this book, but also like she took as much time as she needed to. Like these things take time. Every work of medieval art that you, that you cherish or look at with awe takes years and years and years to make for a litany of reasons, because of the production methods, because of people's obligations. So I'm no different in that regard. I mean, I just have to say thank you for, for staying committed to it. I'm really excited about this movie. I would be pretty bummed if it didn't end up coming out. 
aesthetically, it seems for me, you've nailed it in a way that I really like. You've really got it. It's so good. Like you mentioned, the draping cloth, chef's kiss. The the clothing that you've managed to get, just the whole vibe you've struck is so good. Well, shout out to Nell Simon, our, our costume designer, because she's a genius and she she studied period costuming in school and she loves this stuff. And for the background actors or for some of the other parts where she couldn't do a bespoke wardrobe, she went out and she thrifted stuff within a color palette that we had agreed upon. We were working with like a very historical color palette. Um, she was finding like jewelry and things that would work too. She was doing rentals from costume houses of like period recreations. I mean, Nell is like, in my opinion, she's the best costume designer in New York City. And I picked her work because she specializes in period stuff and because she had a theater background and she absolutely nailed it. And the production design, you know, we all handled it ourselves like, you know, we kind of like split that work, but also like the the set painting too, like a lot of the use of patterns and things like that, those were very carefully researched. So, you know, the historical details, like we, our motto throughout the whole process became like, it's about evocation and not replication, right? Like we can try to the best of our ability to replicate this stuff, but it's going to be really hard. What we would rather do is cultivate the vibe, which is what you said, create the atmosphere or the ambiance of the 14th century with the things that we do. And like, I think a lot of that too had to do with like the lighting and like the, the use of the haze and things like that. Everybody working on this film, you know, not unlike the Renaissance fair had their own kind of understanding of the era and brought their own understanding to it. And I went to a Ren fair like last fall. I don't remember if we talked about this in the episode. It's not about replication. It's about evocation. And everybody understands the assignment differently. So some people come in like incredibly period accurate dress. Some people will just show up wearing elf ears. Everybody comes to the Renaissance fair and their understanding of the Renaissance era, the medieval era, their own way, and they bring their own flair to it. You know, they're not so rigidly locked into this like incredibly faithful interpretation. And everybody working on this film had, you know, an interest in the era and brought like their own fascination with it to the project. And that I think is what makes it so special and why the vibe is still there, even if it's not like the most perfect recreation of the middle ages. I, I want medievalists to love this movie. Like at the end of the day, so many medieval movies are just like done colored and, and very drab and very devoid of color. And if you know, even the slightest thing about medieval art, you know that like, color theory was like a big part of the applied arts at that time. People dressed very colorfully, you know, and the sumptuary laws weren't really like that big of a deal in England at the time too. So we have a little bit of like leeway with things we could play with and things. Who do I want to shout out? Everybody who worked on this movie, like everybody who worked on this movie. Tessa, my lead, Isabel, who played Sarah, who lives with her. Mary Jo, who played Julian's mother and did an amazing job. Uh, Sydney, my amazing AD. Kate, the producer of the film. Gabe, the DP, the best DP in New York. Nell, the costume designer. Matt, the props guy. Orgus, our AC. Irene, the sound recordist. Zach, my editor. Uh, other Zach, my composer. You know, everybody had a hand in this. They all did an amazing job. And also shout out to all my friends who came through to be extras in the movie too. And all of Kate's friends. Like people just showed up, put on a goofy costume and like took direction really well. If there's anything to plug, I guess, like, follow me on Twitter and whatever, and you'll see updates about the movie as they happen. The best way to get the updates, obviously, our crowdfunding campaign ended, but we are still accepting donations on a rolling basis. So even if you give, like, five bucks, you'll get on the mailing list for the updates. I'm wondering if you can give us any sort of an estimate when we should keep an eye out to be able to actually watch this film. We have to raise probably, like, another... 
I want to say like another 30 grand, but it could be anywhere from 25 to 50. Like it's flexible. It's basically depending on what we get. So right now we're in consideration for a couple of post-production grants for, you know, early career filmmakers. Basically we have to shoot the visions. We have to shoot some scenes with models, which is going to be super fun, like models of the town and things like that. Um, And then we have to do the credits, which are obviously going to be a big book. Come on, you gotta you gotta do the big book with the pages turning for the credits when you're making a movie about a writer. Like that's the rule. So those are the three things we have to do. And then after that, it's final sound mix, final color, final score. If I had to guess, I'd say maybe another year. I I would hope sooner. I really don't know. The other thing we're trying to do, and I just had this notion this weekend, and then my my lead Tessa was like, Oh, you know, if you speak this into the universe on the solstice, like it'll happen. Um, Because I, you know, I am esoteric and yesterday was the solstice in the Northern Hemisphere. So there is a full solar eclipse happening in April of next year that's going to be visible from parts of um, central and upstate New York and Vermont. And I was thinking, like, how heady would it be if we shot one of the visions during a fucking solar eclipse? (laughs) Because there's the eclipse that happens at the crucifixion, obviously, when day turns into night. But there's going to be three to four minutes of like total darkness. And I was just thinking like, how sick would it be if we had like Julian in in this visionary state, she sees Christ and it's like dark and then the light returns. Like it's the ultimate practical effect. You know what I mean? Like repeat it, but like to get an eclipse on camera, like with everybody in their, in their splendid medieval costume, like out in a field in Vermont somewhere, it's just too good to pass up. So that's the other thing I want to shoot during an eclipse. Hopefully we make it happen. The other thing that I want to speak into the universe, in case anybody at the Met Museum staff is listening, is I desperately want to shoot in, at the cloisters. Desperately, desperately, desperately. And we've already received state funding from the New York State Council for the Arts. So we are like a legit, like taxpayer sponsored project. And like, I love the cloisters. It's the most beautiful museum in New York. It's the most ethical museum in New York because it's all European plunder. So it's no big deal. Um, I would absolutely love to film in one of the cloisters. So if anyone at the cloisters is listening, I promise you we're not going to fuck up the cloisters. Please, please, please let me come in for just one afternoon. I know you're closed on Tuesdays or Wednesdays. Let me come in on one day. Just shoot one thing at the cloisters so that I can be on the list of films that have shot at the cloisters, which also includes Clint Eastwood's movie, uh, Coogan's Bluff, Portrait of Jenny with... Jennifer Jones, and um, I believe the new West Side Story had a scene shot at the One of you listening, I know you know somebody at the Cloisters. Just like my DMs are open. Please get me in there. Get me in the room. Well, I think that's such a great note to end this on. Again, Caroline, thank you so much for having the time to jump on this with me, catch up, uh, let me know everything that's happened, everything that's been going on with the project as it's unfolded. Thank you. This is like, this has been an honor, truly. He showed me a little thing, the size of a hazelnut, lying in the palm of my hand. I looked upon it with the eye of my understanding and thought, what could this be? It is all that is made. It lasteth and ever shall, because God loveth it.
This has been an episode of the Multicultural Middle Ages, an anthology-style podcast series brought to you by the Graduate Student Committee of the Medieval Academy of America. Season 2 was produced by Will Beattie, Jonathan Correa-Reyes, Reed O'Mara, and Logan Quigley. Music is by Anna O'Connell. Special thanks this episode to Tessa Strain. She plays Julian in Revelations of Divine Love.